So, guys, uh, welcome. Um, and uh, for those I know, most people in the room, not everybody. Um, this is uh, this session is part of our SCAF Culture and Ideas series. Uh, some people call Culture and Ideas public programs, which I, you know, don't think is as nice a name as Culture and Ideas, and really education, but that sounds a bit like school. So we do it as a sharing of ideas, and that's why I want people to be together, because you can't share if you've got one person sitting here and another person sitting there. It feels uh, too isolating. So what I'm going to do, we're talking about portraiture. We've got the director of the uh, Australian National Portrait Gallery from Canberra um, here in Angus Trumbull. I can tell you that since Angus has walked into that portrait gallery, the whole place has lit up like a lantern on a dark night. Um, and... Um, we and I'm in a position to know right behind the scenes and uh, from the sort of outsider's perspective because um, I am on the board of the Portrait Gallery and so I really have seen uh, what uh, what Angus is able to contribute is, is quite exceptional. I was on the selection committee for him and I can say, um, you know, there were a number of other people but my God, we made a good choice. So, uh, <laughs> and I would say that, wouldn't I, <laughs> since I was on the selection committee together with about five, five other people. Um, just to give you a bit of background uh, in terms of Angus, uh, he, uh, Melbourne University, he's a perfect person for the Portrait Gallery because he majored in art and in history, in the history of art, but in history, history as well. And of course, the Portrait Gallery is a... Um, you know, it's about history as well as it's about art. And Uli Sig, when he came for a show that I was involved in there, uh, couldn't understand from Switzerland what a portrait gallery did. It's mostly a an Anglo phenomenon, not a European phenomenon. If you think Washington, London, Edinburgh, uh, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, and so um, he only kept saying, what is a portrait gallery? And I kept saying, well, what do you mean? It's about portraits. And when he arrived at the portrait gallery, something gave him the, um, the, the clue. And that, there are more uh, chairs, Rebecca. And the clue was that the name of the person comes before the name of the artist. So in other words, it's more about the person. It's about both. But it's... Normally, you put the artist's name first in a, in a regular gallery, and you put the person, uh, you know, who, if it's a portrait. But here, the person comes first. So it's about uh, eminent people, eminent Australians, or in the case of the temporary exhibitions, uh, it depends. It could be about a number of different things. Um, Angus went on from Melbourne Uni to the Peggy Guggenheim. Many of us have been there as an intern. And then he went to Rome. I don't know what the Bibliotheca, of course, means library. Herziana. It is a library. It's an art history research institute. Research institute. Mm. And he was a Fulbright scholar, so that says a lot about him. Um, went to New York at the Institute of Fine Arts. He was a curator in Adelaide. I have to say, I didn't meet him there at the time. And he did... Uh, I was too insignificant. <laughs> 
Well, I can't imagine you ever being insignificant, but at the same time, sometimes curators, and especially time ago, work behind the scenes more than in the front. Nowadays, they're expected to fundraise and God knows what, so they have to come forward. But there was a time when curators sat in their ivory towers. Um, he was a curator in Adelaide, and he did uh, two uh, distinguished shows at the time, Bohemian London, Camden, and Bloomsbury, so you get that, uh, early part of the 20th century, and Love and Death in the Time of Queen Victoria, which was a touring show. He then went, and this was his previous position, he went to the Yale Centre for British Art in Connecticut, um, and he was there for uh, 11, 11 years. years. Uh, senior curator, he went on an exchange to the Victorian Albert in London. Uh, he's written a number of books. The Brief History of the Smile in 2003 is the most famous one. Isn't that a lovely title, A Brief History of the Smile? I haven't read it, but I just love the title. And then Edwardian Opulence, British Art at the Dawn of the 20th Century, that Edwardian period. And really, uh, the 18th century, it seems to me, uh, Angus, and the dawn of the 20th century are your two really main or other, other periods as well? No, you're right. I think it, it, by, by more or less an accident, I ended up landing um, on between two stools, 18th century and late 19th, yeah. early 20th. Well, you know, a lot of us... Because it means that when you get bored with one... You can you shift, go to, shift the to the other. And also you're more flexible, you know, you're more versatile. You've got more things you can do. And it's also, I don't know, more interesting. I've got literature and art and I, I've never regretted it. Um, he was appointed uh, just over a year ago. Stuart, that's nice. Bring, uh, hello, bring a, bring a chair for this very important man who's left his own gallery on a Saturday. <laughs> On a Saturday, he's left his gallery. Angus, you must be very important. <laughs> That's wonderful, Stuart. We're just finishing introducing Angus. Uh, about uh, just over a year ago, he arrived at the Portrait Gallery. There was a long selection process. There was a change of government. That was the moment the Abbott government came into power. So it, the selection went on for too long. But, um, you know, there was nothing to be done, and eventually he was appointed and started in February last year. So we're just March now, so 11 months. Now, we invited Angus today uh, because even though you don't realise it, perhaps, what you see in this gallery, and also remember it's a double-barreled uh, show, there is an exhibition of Sean Gladwell's uh, work in collections at the... Uh, University of New South Wales galleries, Corner Oxford and, Queens, and Green Street, roughly. Um, these two shows are significantly about portraiture, but taking the notion of portraiture very far away, perhaps, from its origins. So what I'm going to do now is... Um, give you in two sentences how I came to Sean a little description of these two shows and then what Angus and I are going to discuss is is this portraiture in what way is it portraiture what Angus understands about portraiture, where the portrait gallery might stop at the idea of portraiture somebody's just told me in the room they've been to Washington 
uh, to the Portrait Gallery and that every this, our gallery looks very hip and very uh, cutting edge compared to the rather staid portraits that are on show in Washington. I think London does a very good job. I haven't been to the Portrait Gallery in Washington for years, uh, Angus. So just quickly, I've known Sean since 1997. He won the Willoughby Art Prize, where I was a judge, one of three judges. It was a local council prize. I followed him. He went to Goldsmiths. He won a scholarship in um, London. Uh, well, it was a Samstag scholarship. He could have gone anywhere, chose to go to Goldsmiths. And then uh, we, in, we um, sort of took him on as one of our artists, the artists we represented. There were only 27 of them at Sherman Gallery. So that was how I got to know him. Sean, in the in, then we closed the commercial gallery, as most of you know, and we opened the foundation. This is the eighth year. And Sean, uh, in the meanwhile, went all over the world, and he was incorporate, incorporated both during his commercial gallery time and since we opened the foundation in shows. I had a little look. Taiwan, China, France, the Netherlands, doing an opera. The US, Israel, the UK. He had a solo show at the most peculiar gallery called the Dilla War uh, Pavilion in East Sussex. Very interesting. He did a film, Tim Winton's The Turning, and Philip Keir is here under Philip's uh, philanthropic umbrella. He was chosen uh, as a finalist. He didn't win ultimately to do... Um, a choreographic piece. And I didn't see the finished piece in Melbourne, but I did see the uh, rehearsal here, Philip. So I was quite, um, you know, I, I understood what he was doing. I went, I always said to Sean, he was the last show at Sherman Gallery's commercial. And I said to him, I want him to do a project for the foundation, which is Asian, Australian, and Middle Eastern artists. They get $100,000. I'm always open about the money. And they get a catalogue, which is outside of the 100000 This time it's in French and English, and I would urge you to at least take a look at it and buy it if, you, if you're still buying books, which I hope you are. And I, he was really, he moved to London in 2010. And interestingly enough, there were English curators or curators, London-based, who took an interest in his work, but the greater interest in his work came from France. And so I made a trip to France when I was traveling anyway, and I went to the four curators. I met with them. I didn't tell them why I was meeting with them. I met with them to find out why they were interested in Sean's work. That's how I uh, couched it. I said, isn't it... I speak French, as most of you know, and I said, how interesting is it that coming in London there's less interest where you would expect and in France much more interest and I asked each of them why actually what I was doing was I was interviewing people but I was a bit sneaky and didn't tell them it was an interview for somebody to curate sh the show that is currently on at UNSW galleries and I chose a woman called Dr Barbara Poller uh, who is a medical doctor uh, an MD, but also a researcher and shh, 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 researcher on Sean uh, on the um, on the impact of stress on the cellular levels of the body, 
And um, Sean started off as a skateboarder, and his interest, one of his many interests, is in extreme sports, and they're dangerous. You know, the skateboarders go off a ramp, you can break your neck as you come down. So he... um, Uh, That's how Barbara came to his work. She was a politician for 13 years in the Swiss Parliament, and she um, decided, she had four daughters, or has four daughters, at a certain moment, family, I've done my dash, I've slaved over these four girls. Well, she did do medicine, practice medicine, and was a parliamentarian, so she couldn't have been at home all the time. (laughs) But she decided, I've done my dash, and I am now going into art. And she took an interest in Sean and in a number of other artists. And she's got a tiny, tiny little gallery, really a hole-in-the-wall gallery, called Analix Forever in Geneva. A-N-A-L-I-X, Analix and Forever in English. And she really shows very young emerging artists. So that's, that's what, what happened. And she uh, curated that show, which I would really urge you to see. And this was our project, the Lacrima Chair, which uh, Angus and I will uh, talk about. So now I'm going to um, start with Angus. And uh, Angus, I've told him this before. Uh, he didn't know it, and perhaps most of you won't know it. Is that Sean started off as a painter. He trained as a painter. And his first body of work, Rebecca, let that person come through. The first body of work was uh, where I did that judging was a, a series of portraits of 18th century uh, landed gentry um, relating to people, I think, from Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Gainsborough, is it? Yes. Yes, Thomas. So let's talk a bit about Reynolds and Gainsborough in the first place. Well, you could not hope for a more um, canonical um, juxtaposition. It's one, of, it's one of the set pieces of art history, is, mm. the, is the relationship, the fraught relationship between Sir Joshua Reynolds and his great contemporary and, in a sense, lifelong rival, Thomas Gainsborough. Reynolds um, ha- had an enormous aspiration for... Uh, quote-unquote, the British School uh, of Art, with capital B, capital S, um, such that the creation of the Royal Academy of Arts in the late 1760s would serve to provide an academic and teaching framework that would produce a school to rival those of France, Spain, uh, Italy uh, and Germany. Um, I mean, it's almost comical in its uh, extravagance. But that was, in a way, uh, what Reynolds was like. Um, he, he was an enormously ambitious man for himself and for the art of his time. And the Academy uh, reinforced a hierarchy of genres uh, that's very hard for us to, um, to grasp today the primacy of history painting, that's to say, improving moral, uh, morally saturated subjects drawn from classical Greek and Roman mythology or biblical or history subjects, for example. Uh, Gainsborough, uh, everything about Gainsborough's art was derived or derived nourishment from exposure to French art. Um, and he, he, his... Uh, his, his paintings um, 
were feather, in, in almost every respect, so feathery. Um, uh, by contrast with Reynolds's sort of um, rock solid uh, qualities, um, the two men knew each other uh, and uh, uh, enjoyed a perfectly fraught relationship for the whole of their lives. <laughs> but there was, you'll be glad to know, a deathbed reconciliation. <laughs> Um, uh, that uh, in a way Gainsborough um, was like so many uh, portrait painters uh, <clears throat> then and since. He felt on the one hand that his success was built on the production of these wonderful, uh, glamorous portraits, never more glamorous than during his bath period when he was painting the great and the good on holiday. Um, Yet he felt at the same time absolutely uh, harnessed to the production of portraits at the expense of subjects that he would much rather have been painting uh, full time, above all landscape. Um, uh, so Gainsborough, the uh, urbane, uh, Frenchified portrait painter of his era, uh, was on his deathbed. Um, and um, Reynolds comes to say goodbye. And, um, uh, and Gainsborough's last words were, uh, we're both going to heaven and Van Dyke is of the party. <laughs> um, so at the British Arts Centre, we used to hang uh, two portraits, both actually with very strong American uh, associations. One, a very pompous portrait of the Earl of Harrington, who was possibly the most incompetent general ever produced by the British Army. And think of the competition. Um, <laughs> um, uh, who single-handedly lost the Battle of Saratoga in the Hudson Valley campaign. Uh, and liked to, in, well, in, in, in the, in the uh, time-honoured manner, was promoted subsequently, uh, and retired to his estate where he liked to wear antique suits of armour uh, and be t attended by his uh, Jamaican servant who was recruited on the way home. We hung this next to Thomas Gainsborough's portrait of Sir William Johnston Pulteney, who was a, a great absentee landowner in uh, the American colonies um, and actually conducted secret negotiations with Benjamin Franklin that sought to avoid the American Revolution, obviously failed. But that was, those two pictures were the first two pictures you saw when you came into the British Arts Centre. And so therefore, the relationship between Reynolds and Gainsborough was a defining one, really, for um, the history of British art in the 18th century. That's a long, long answer. Oh, but, but it's a wonderful answer because we got an 18th century art history lesson in the meanwhile. <laughs> yes. But what I want to ask now, a very controversial question, or I don't know, Angus, maybe not so controversial. But uh, you, ha and we haven't got slides, we're doing this with words today. Um, if you uh, were presented and you thought the quality was high enough uh, of uh, a Sean Gladwell, young artist, he was at the time, or, uh, you know, he's 42 now, so he's hardly old. Uh, he was, what did we work out, 25 or something yep. at the time, 24, 25. Uh, we own one of these portraits, by the way, because when I, we did that judging, the three of us, we gave the prize and Brian and I bought the one portrait. Would that, uh, you know, they head sliced off, relating to Gainsborough and to Reynolds, would 
um, would that be a, 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 an appropriate acquisition for the National Portrait Gallery? Probably it, not. It, well, it would depend, <laughs> I think, on the subject. I mean, we... we, we um, a National Portrait Gallery does a number of things that other other art museums don't do. Um, and I suppose um, uh, the, the paradox is that it's very difficult to establish a network of National Portrait Galleries be- precisely because each does for the country in which it's embedded something entirely different from the next one. Uh, and in our case, we, I think, in shorthand, uh, try to hold a mirror up to the country um, by means of portraits of our most eminent um, citizens, past and present, um, and tell a narrative or a group of narratives based on, on people. Uh, and, of course, uh, that is, is sui generis. Uh, it's going to be a unique approach for Australia and done entirely differently in Sweden and, and Denmark. But it would still be done. I mean, it would be for the most eminent people in Britain or the most eminent people in America. But where, what's interesting is that because we're so youthful, and I think this is, lies behind your question, mm. because we're so youthful and so nimble uh, as an organisation, we, uh, by contrast with the NPG in London, which was established in 1856 and now owns 160,000 objects, and... Uh, in a way, apart from the ground floor, which is devoted to temp- contemporary yes. portrait practice, does tend to drag the visitor kicking and screaming from William the Conqueror, uh, pinging from monarch to monarch <laughs> with little kind of little furtive uh, detours into the world of art and letters. Mm. But by and large, monarchs and statesmen... Mm-hmm. You mentioned the Smithsonian, the mm. National Portrait Gallery in Washington. Um, more than half of their space is devoted to um, a, a positively frightful sequence of um, aesthetic experiences, <laughs> bringing you from George Washington all the way into ever more airless regions, uh, ultimately occupied by uh, Bill Clinton and uh, George W. Bush. Um, we, we are not like that. One of the reasons we're not like that, and it's a huge gift for me, it's an even bigger gift for you as, as our governing board, and I should acknowledge Yasmin Allen, who's yes, also you on who our board. Yes, you walked in, yes. Um, Welcome, Yasmin. Uh, <laughs> that there exists in this country something that I guarantee none of you will ever have heard of. In fact, I had never heard of it either. Prime Minister Andrew Fisher, just before the First World War, instituted a thing called the Historic Memorials Committee of Cabinet. And its members technically are the Prime Minister and I think the Attorney General and one other senior minister. I don't think they've ever met. They exist uh, by virtue of delegates. Uh, And the, uh, the Historic Memorials Committee took responsibility for the commissioning of official portraits for the Commonwealth, i.e. actually for the Parliament, uh, of the Sovereign, the Prime Minister, the Governor-General, the President of the Senate, Speaker of the House of Representatives and the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. I think about 15 years ago, excitingly, a reform was uh, passed whereby the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia was shunted off to the High Court of Australia. 
Other than that, after the end of the term of office, such as it is, of any of those other high offices of state, uh, the HRC commissions an official portrait, usually with the uh, cooperation and agreement of the sitter. Um, uh, some sitters are more helpful, I should say, with this process than others. Um, but uh, that means that lifted out of the sphere of responsibility of a National Portrait Gallery is the um, uh, exciting process of commissioning such portraits um, as constitute an uninterrupted sequence of presidents pro tem of the Senate. Um, can anyone here think of the name of a president of the Senate? I couldn't. Um, and those pictures have accumulated, as you can probably imagine, in enormous numbers, such that they extend now halfway down corridors in the agriculture department and other uh, uh, areas of overflow. But I, I repeat, it means that, that we're actually saved from the Washington and the, um, and the London yes. uh, syndrome. Um, and that then raises the question, well, what do we do? And I think one of the things that, that my predecessor, the, uh, the founding director of the... Uh, my predecessor but one, the founding director of the National Portrait Gallery, Andrew Sayers, did brilliantly, was to craft the institution with an eye to actually questioning, well, what is the boundary of portraiture itself? Mm. How do we test those bounds? Mm. I mean, what, what does where does portraiture start? And, and possibly... Does it ask the question, does it even end at all? Yeah. We have a, a, a long tradition in, in the British uh, context of, for instance, house portraits, portraits of country houses mm -hmm. commissioned to, um, as it were, encapsulate the identity of a, of a family, uh, but there is long, long centuries-old mm. association with a country, a country establishment. We talked about dogs, if you remember. Whether we have they dog portraits. And, and, we have... and horse portraits. Yep. You know, they, but we decided against... Uh, Yasmin, you remember. We decided against that horse portrait. And we did. And dogs. And we decided that, you know, once you start opening the door, everything's a portrait. Here comes everybody. And it probably stops being a portrait gallery. Can I just uh, segue a little bit now? Uh, so, I mean, we haven't got a clear answer. Do you think we would have uh, accepted that uh, uh, Sean Gladwell portrait? How I, I think... I think we would have debated it. We would have debated it. Yes. And, and if, if, if I had been part of that debate, I would have said what I say quite often is, where does the concept and the word portrait come from? Well, it actually comes from la the Latin, uh, protraho, which means I draw. Now, and that's all. Yes. But, it, but I draw in Latin as in English now, mean, means exactly the same things in two senses. I draw as in I depict, and I draw as in I extract. And so the question is, what does an artist take from a sitter mm. when the, the artist creates a portrait? Mm -hmm. That's how I try and think I see. of, well, it's a good, of a good methodology. And mm. so the question would be, in, in Sean's early work mm. in his paintings, if he's, if he's uh, 
as it were, apostrophising um, the work of Gainsborough Reading. Yes. It, it wouldn't uh, without regard to a, an, an individual subject. No, it wouldn't have Then been. I think it wouldn't no, be. No, it wouldn't. It but was, if, mm. if, if that subject were, number one, identifiable and he cared about who it was... Or if that subject was an Australian or came right. to Australia afterwards... Or had Australian association. Association just without the head, because they were all headless. Then I think it would it, have it, a, it, a different claim. Well, Yasmin, we haven't had to <laughs> debate this, but maybe one day we will. Now, I want to just go through some of Sean's themes uh, and then come back to the notion of portraiture via this very cutting-edge contemporary show, which really, uh, at first glance, would seem to have little to do with portraits or portraiture. Um, Barbara Poller, the French woman that I described, Dr. Barbara Poller, um, was the curator of the show at UNSW Galleries, as I said, and we left it to her as curator, as, as that, was the, that was her job, to extract some themes from Sean's work. He's a pr prolific worker. He, you know, is a true artist in the sense that everything is work, really. Um, what, are, what were or are the themes that resonate with her and how can that, those themes be uh, materially um, uh, kind of... Uh, well, turned into objects, whether they sculptural objects, found, found objects, uh, two-dimensional objects on the walls, photographs, uh, whatever. How, how did those themes, whatever they were, how did they materialise into something concrete? And uh, Barbara, I think, did the, her best work in finding these themes. I've known his work right from the beginning, as I've said, and, but, you know, if you don't have to sit down and look at an artist's entire body of work, sort of with one headspace and a show in mind, Angus, as a curator, uh, certainly knows this, and anybody who's worked on exhibition making, Stuart included, you, you know this intuitively, um, you, you don't always see the whole picture and then what jumps out at you. And so what jumped out for Barbara, different curator, other things might have jumped out, but what jumped out for her were these themes. Flight, the idea of flight, whether it was birds or planes, anything in the air. Uh, dance, uh, going back to Philip and the uh, choreography um, uh, um, what, should I call it a competition, Philip? Yes, I can call it a competition. Uh, bodies moving. It wasn't always dance. It was sometimes skateboarding. He was a champion skateboarder, not just a Sunday skateboarder. He actually went into skateboarding competitions. Uh, a BMX bike riding, which I have to say I'd never heard of until I met Sean, but you, you know, all these extreme sports and dangerous sports where your body is involved in a, an immersive way in what you're doing and you're expressing something through your bodily movements. So she uh, picked out that. Physical feats, it's the same thing. Um, and then all, body on the brink which in a way is the same thing as well, pushing your body to the limits, which da dancers do, as we know. And anybody who's ever tried ballet or had a child who has done ballet knows you've got to have a particular kind of body for classical ballet to begin with, and then you've got to push it right to the end of its capacity in order to get... Uh, in order to do it properly and, and ultimately become a master it. So uh, those were her themes. Now... 
I don't know how many of you are aware of the term post-object art. Um, of course, this is what the choreography um, uh, sequence uh, is. It, it is. It's a descriptive term. It means art that is art without having a thing at the end of it. And it's become terribly a la mode, uh, enormously focused upon. And there's an article in today's uh, paper, so I'm not sharing any secrets here, about Judith Nielsen, the White Rabbit uh, gallery owner, who is building, um, quite apart from that beautiful building that she's got already, she's building her own home, uh, garden uh, that Janet Lawrence is designing, which is why I knew about it before, and uh, a, a performance space come private gallery. So performance, body, post-object, there's nothing that remains unless you document the performance, and that can be seen as art or not as art, depending on the artist. And, of course, uh, Sean also is uh, of the generation that has come into maturity during our technological age. So he is as familiar with computers and the Internet and all, you know, the tools of technology, uh, probably the first generation. And I know this because of Emil, my son, is exactly the same age. They were really the first generation. They didn't grow up with technology, but they hit it in high school and certainly at university and they became adept, not in the same way as their children are adept, who've never known a world without it, but definitely he was part of that generation. So um, if you've got... Uh, and Barbara also identified a theme. So think of birds, flight. Um, she identified um, uh, doubling as a theme that interested her in Sean's show, that sense of the double, which you see... Here to an extent, but more so perhaps in the earlier work, which is at UNSW Galleries. So now I want to ask uh, Angus, and we've had a little discussion about this beforehand. Let's start with the book, and that's the hardest part in a way. I don't know how many of you noticed as you came in, as you turn to the right, there's a very large book on a shelf, which is called Semiotext. This is a very, very philosophically, conceptually, visually, and technologically layered show. It's got everything in it, and it's got many layers of all those things. So turn right if you haven't done it, or turn left as you're going out, and there's a book called Semiotext, which is very large, and you, they're small versions like that. And this book is a philosophical tract it's divided into three parts called function, parafunction, and patafunction. There are only a very few people in this room from amongst the people I see in front of me who would uh, find that book interesting uh, because it's about semiotics and structuralism and a French um, approach to uh, analysing uh, cultural products uh, whether they be film or uh, literature or the visual arts or fashion or cuisine. It's a, a particular prism, like a, a magnifying glass that you can use, very particular. And Sean, who came from a very modest family, uh, really, I don't think there were, was much by way of books in the house, certainly not art. Uh, you know, uh, four brothers uh, struggle just to get by, 
Agochi University to his uh, master's degree, and the first thing he hit at our Australian universities at that time, at University of New South Wales up here, uh, which then called COFA, was semiotics. Now, some people, as an approach to looking at art, to looking at anything really that is cultural, and uh, I uh, hit that too at a much earlier date, and uh, my story I won't go into now, but I had to make my way through it and resented it deeply, but felt quite pleased afterwards. It added a full year to my doctorate, uh, which I deeply, deeply resented. But, um, but afterwards, you know, when you go through something hard, often you think, well, I didn't want to do it and I perhaps wish I didn't have to have spent that extra time, but I've learned something completely new. Sean felt that he came to a portrait... He, he, he came into his own identity as distinct from the family identity and going back to Angus's idea of the home uh, sometimes as being a portrait of a family. His home was not a portrait of him. His portrait of himself started when he got to university and he got to the set of theories and also it was a practical course. And so what he did when he was discussing this project with me, he said, Gene, I want to write a book. And I said, oh, well, why? And he said, because it's, a, it's, it's part of the show. And I said, in what way is it part of the show? And he went into a whole thing about Bachelard and, and uh, Baudrillard and all these people I read, I was forced to read. I read it in the original French. Um, and I said, Sean, really, I think this is a separate project. You know, it's going to cost extra money. We've got one publication, and now there's got to be another one. It's got to look like semiotext. He had very specific ideas as to how it looked, uh, because that was the way these theories were translated into English. Angus, hold it up again, into these little books that were published out of America in the 60s. There's a little group of French Americans who came to this thing. They were written in French, and Paul Patton here at Sydney University, Professor Paul Patton, uh, translated them into English. Sean got hold of Paul. Uh, every time I spoke to him, I said, honestly, I think this book, it's going to take too much time off you. you you're going to be, you've never written a book before. It's, you, you're not going to be ready for the show. Jean, it's central to the whole concept. I can't do the show if I don't do the book. Well, that was where I was left. So <laughs> he couldn't do the show if he can't do the book. So I said, well, look, do the blessed book, but don't make it such a focus because I still think the show could have existed without the book. However, for him, it was central, and he sees it as a portrait. Now, Angus, I don't know how you're going to answer this, because I can't answer it myself. He wrote it with Paul Patton and one of Paul's students called Dr. Denise Thwaite, and um, so it's his ideas. I, I, I didn't get involved. All we did was write the check and, and get the designer to design uh, the same designer. But it was copied off an original design. It wasn't actually a big design job. So I had no idea how this conversation went, but I do know it was a very lengthy, very intelligent, very serious conversation. I've read the book that resulted in a... You have to have the jargon. It's like reading a medical text and not having medical background. If you have the jargon, which I do, 
you can read this book and it's brilliant. So, is this a portrait? <laughs> I'm sorry, Angus. Well, I think I, 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 should, I should say that um, uh, semiotics and, and, um, and French critical theory are not my strong point. I know, and not anybody's um, strong. And the reason, actually, yeah. there's a good reason for that because mm. when I was going through the University of Melbourne in the early 80s, it was precisely the moment when, when that, that great conflict was overtaking all, really, departments in the humanities. That's true. And in, at Melbourne in particular, there was a most, most ugly and acrimonious um, civil war uh, in the English department between ancient disciples of the critic F.R. Leavis. Mm. And there would be only a few people who were sufficiently old in this room who would, including myself, who would remember the, even remember the name of F.R. Liebes. I certainly do. And, and the new wave of, of deconstruction mm. people. Yeah. And, um, uh, and on the Liebes side were, the, were Maggie and Jock Tomlinson, who were wonderful um, teachers, but adherents of the long-standing English canon. Uh, and particularly of Jane Austen. So, I mean, that was then, and now we're into a world in which the cultural landscape wants to say that um, there is no appreciable difference between um, a a portrait by Reynolds and Gainsborough and a comic book uh, or a movie or pornography, that these are all aggregations of signs. That's been a huge revolution in the intellectual life um, uh, in the last 40 years. Well, since the 60s, but it was imported into Australia. I arrived in 76 from a university in South Africa and I went straight to Sydney University in the French department and it was raging. Battle. In fact, I was told I could not do my, finish my doctorate, which was almost finished, unless I utilised these methodologies. I couldn't do, I finish the doctorate here. I mean, I could finish it. I started it at the Sorbonne, but I couldn't travel. So it was do it this way or go elsewhere. I mean, I mm. think the question is, um, uh, the really intriguing question um, arising from this particular project uh, is a different one from the question whether memoir uh, in literature mm-hmm. uh, constitutes a form of literary self-portrait, mm. a portrait of the artist as a young man, mm. or indeed Proust is, you could mm. argue, is one of the great monuments of self-portraiture um, ever produced in literature. Um, for an artist, for 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 an artist whose practice is embedded in visual culture, mm. to produce a book that is a, a self-styled self-portrait. He calls it self-portrait um, of the artist uh, as is, a young man. Is, yeah. is, is, is a fascinating idea. Um, for me, however, the, um, f- there are two problems. Firstly, there are no pictures. No. Uh, and secondly, <laughs> I don't understand all the sentences. No. <laughs> Because you have to have the lexicon. Um, so I'm, I, I feel I feel slightly inhibited. Um, beyond beyond my crippling shyness. Um, I think, but but and, and the other thing is that that uh, um, I think this this is a situation that we 
we encounter more and more as um, as curators mm. and as museum people um, when an artist conceives a very complex project mm-hmm. and simply says, um, I'm telling you that this is an essential part of, of the project. But uh, at, to, a, to some degree, you're, you're under an obligation to listen and I to follow. To. I had to, yes. uh, and, and that's their decision. Yes. Um, I, 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 for me, it's not the strongest element in no, the project. Neither for me, no. Um, I, I'm, I'm far more... I'm far more drawn and engaged by the sort of slightly um, absurdist but also um, lyrical throne-like mm. presence in the, the middle of the chair. Yeah, the chair. Uh, mm. Which it seems to me... A chair is a very interesting object because, of course, without the body uh, that it's designed to accommodate... It really ha- makes no sense. It has only one purpose, and that's for, to accommodate one's bottom um, <laughs> uh, to varying degrees of comfort. Um, and and um, to see to see a chair um, that's fetishized in this way, that's throne-like, that's occupies the centre of a room, um, does really uh, ring a lot of very very ancient cultural bells. Mm. It, it, it is. It, 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 there's a religio um, mm. um, ritual mm. quality mm. Uh, of such a chair, mm-hmm. um, and it it sort of lends to the space a kind of um, liturgical quality. Yes, almost. interesting. Temple. I understand or th- that. Or, or the throne room. Yes. It's a, yes. It's a, so I, I I actually I I, I feel that that. The, the chair for me is is, is the starting point, mm-hmm. and of course we know that Sean's thinking originated with uh, with um, an, uh, an earlier work of art. That's to yes. say, one of the versions of um, Francis Bacon's um, uh, pastiche uh, of yet another and earlier work. That's to say, Diego Velasquez's portrait of Pope Innocent X uh, in Rome. Uh, both pictures I'm very, very fascinated by, and I'm interested that Sean should be fascinated by now, Bacon. Yes. I want to add, now that we've got rid of semi-text and all that it implies, we did have a session. There were 12 people uh, one Saturday morning before Barbara left. Uh, this whole semiology thing started actually in Switzerland by a linguist called Ferdinand de Saussure. But don't let's go down that path again. But uh, Barbara is quite well up on it, and we had 12 people here in the room, um, most of whom really were into this, and we had a very fascinating... I was quite proud of the level of intellectual engagement that day. It was quite quite interesting. But I, I think, for me, I agree the chair and 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 what surrounds the chair is really the key to the show. It's not for Sean. For him, he still says the book is the key Mm. to the show for him. But I think all artists understand that once you allow your artwork to go out into the public domain, you can't control what other people think. It's up to them. So 
Sean, apart from the semiological side, and he was very rare in this, because as a young student, you listen to what your teachers tell you. I mean, that's why you go to university, but you also go to be a free thinker and learn to be a free thinker. And he was sufficiently intelligent and insufficiently intelligent to say, hang on a moment. This is one way of looking at art history, uh, but there are other ways. And he made a very clear decision, and I don't know if it was conscious or not, but it unfolded in a very logical and thought-through and mindful way that he was going to learn art history in the traditional way. Who followed who, and who was part of what school, and uh, what, you know what were the great pictures, and who was in the canon, being the story of art for those people who don't use that word. And uh, you know, he, he so. As an art, as a student of art history, you can't fault this young man. He wouldn't have had a book in the home. He, they never took him as a child to museums and so on. And he knows art history like almost no other artist that I ever worked with or knew. So, but he did the two, and they've merged together. And that comes back to Angus's um, observation that that chair which is a Qantas chair that we found in Turkey um, through the internet and brought to Australia as a Qantas 380. Uh, we've had great debate over whether it's a first-class chair or not, uh, and some people think it is and some people think it isn't, but if it is, it's a very old chair in any case. It is old. It's probably from the 70s. And, um, but he's definitely referencing the portraits that Angus is talking about. So, uh, Angus, you go through them again. There's the Velasquez. Well, there, there, there's a the, series yes. of steps. In fact, it's very, very... I mean, well, it's always dangerous to say something's very, very interesting. Um, Why? Interesting to me. <laughs> um, so we step back... I mean, Sean is looking, in the first instance, um, at a series of paintings uh, undertaken by Francis Bacon, I think, in the, in the late 60s, pa early 70s. I would have thought a bit earlier, but you could be or it right. could have been mid-60s. Mid yeah. Um, which arose uh, from his harvesting of a, an illustration uh, in a colour supplement, supplement to one of the British weeklies um, that reproduced a, a great Baroque portrait by Diego Velasquez, um, which uh, is of Pope Innocent X in the collection of the Doria Pamphili family in Rome. Um, but Bacon came to that subject through two different uh, avenues, or at least adapted the picture uh, and, and the Pope to two different purposes. He had been working on a series of pictures of apes with very primal and highly confronting um, screeching um, attitudes with long fangs. Uh, but he'd also been very preoccupied at the same time with certain scenes in uh, the, the, the film called The Battleship Potemkin. Um, and these two kind of merged uh, and the Pope became this, the, the kind of catalyst for uh, um, the, the two and, of course, as is axiomatic, it's the screaming Pope. Um, there's that marvellous scene in, in Alan Bennett's uh, Question of Attribution when... 
uh, the Queen and Anthony Blunt are talking about art. Um, and at one point, uh, uh, Bennett has the Queen saying that it's, it's a, a wonder that they haven't asked Francis Bacon to paint me. He's done the Screaming Pope. What would I be, the Screaming Queen? Anyway. Um, is it true? No, no, this is the play. Uh, this is it's, the it's, play. It's, but it's, a, it's, a, it's just a very funny scene. You had to be there. Um, uh, but what's so interesting is that the Bacon series um, looks to uh, the original picture, the Velasquez, a 17th century portrait, which itself is based on a whole sequence of very, very formally um, uh, prescriptive um, modes for papal portraiture that originated with Raphael's portrait of Pope Julius II. So it's got this whole roll-on effect. And he would be aware of this. Yeah. Yes, he would. um, Mm. And his initial idea, which is illustrated in the the catalogue, is that um, he conceives of um, an aeroplane... Uh, flying it at maximum altitude um, with a series of, as it were, Bacon screaming popes seated one after the other. He sort of sees this as a kind of, uh, as a kind of celestial economy class uh, and then imagines the effect of uh, the atmospheric conditions on the outside of the aeroplane transferred to the interior now, I say that this with some hesitation because actually one, one resonance of this show that is significantly different yesterday and today from what it would have been earlier in the week arises from the kind of um, the awful news that I only half heard yesterday on mm. the radio uh, concerning what exactly happened to the plane that went down in, mm. in the French Alps. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of... I feel sort of slightly hesitant about pursuing this, but um, uh, because it is so so horrifying. But it's also after the after the effect. I mean, yeah. he wouldn't have known. No, no, about, no, that's right. Yes, yeah, so. and and I. Mm. But, but just for example, I mean, I when I flew here this morning, I flew yesterday to Melbourne, and I flew back to Canberra, and then I flew to Sydney this morning. Both mornings. I found myself reflecting that I, I was not aware of ever having given any thought to the mental state mm-hmm. or possible derangement of the pilot and co-pilot. Mm. Yet I noticed that I was inspecting both rather carefully, <laughs> searching for signs of, of either one. Instability. Yeah. And, you know, not that you would be inclined perhaps to circulate a, a psychological test, but one doesn't... I mean, it's it, it, it's an extraordinary uh, mm. e- event, and and one that that it seems to me um, changes my feelings about flight, mm. um, especially since one has to, one is obliged to imagine, and this is not entirely um, uh, not germane. One is one is forced to imagine of a descent from thirty eight thousand feet to zero in eight minutes. That's, that's bloody steep. Mm-hmm. And for a good proportion of that time, those poor people were witnessing a Lufthansa subsidiary pilot attacking the, the cockpit door with an axe. 
on their side. Mm. Angus, don't let's get too far off because no. we haven't got a lot of time. But, but, but I suppose my, my wider, my larger point is that flight is a visceral experience. It is, yes. So we're already in kind of territory that post 9-11... Yeah, exactly. There, there is Every flight has a cloud over it. Every time you go through the, um, you know, the searching part... You, there's a reason for doing it. And when they call you aside, you often think, oh, drat. And then you think, maybe, perhaps it's necessary, you know. So let's, let's go back to the portrait. So here, because I'm a bit uh, yep. aware of time. We've got a self-portrait as in the form of a book. We've got a, um, a portrait uh, of... of of nobody, no one sitting in the chair at the moment, uh, unless somebody, any of you. We have had people sitting there with the poncho. The poncho was meant to be the costume of the Pope. We did start with uh, purple ponchos, and with the only ones we could get were made uh, transparent, so whatever colour clothes you were wearing, you saw your white shirts and so on through the purple poncho, so they no longer looked purple because they, were too, they weren't opaque. So we went, Sean's decision, with the uh, black poncho which is in Bacon's portrait and the previous portraits as well. You've got uh, Sean said you've got the uh, lines coming down. I don't know, I know the Bacon portraits but I don't know them well enough to know if the lines come down. There's some sort of strange lines in uh, all of them and as far as you yes. remember Angus. Yes, Bacon I mean Bacon was interested in, in uh, really all, all through his career but in in um, cage-like frameworks. Yes, they look a bit like bars of a cage, but Sean has interpreted this as water, as tears. And then, very importantly, because we've got this wonderful portrait of Nancy Bird Walton, borrowed from the portrait gallery. Thank you, Jasper, Yasmin and Andrew uh, and uh, Angus. We've got um, uh, our, our being the portrait gallery's uh, one of two portraits that... Uh, is owned by the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra of Nancy Bird Walton, who was an Australian. Uh, most people who grew up in Australia know who she is. I didn't until I came to the Portrait Gallery, really. So I've learned so much by being on that board. Nancy Bird uh, was an, a, an aviator, a woman aviator, as most of you would know, pioneering woman. But what I didn't know... Uh, I didn't know anything about her, but I learned first from the portrait gallery, my connection there. And then afterwards, I learned from Sean, who does a lot of research in, for whatever project he's doing, that her mentor and teacher was Charles Kingsford Smith. And the Charles, uh, after whom our airport is named, and Charles, that was my only association with Charles Kingsford Smith. And after he apparently disappeared, off the coast of Burma, some people say Indonesia, we'll have to Google it and see if it uh, corresponds, but anyway, into the sea. The plane was never found, and in Sean's imagination, and uh, there was a close relationship between them, whether they were lovers or whether they were student-teacher, they definitely were student-teacher, um, uh, uh, Sean imagined in that large video, which is, runs for about, I've forgotten, maybe... 12 minutes or something, she, um, Sean imagines Nancy Bird in the waves looking for Charles Kingsford Smith. 
the way we are looking for the black box now, mm. or they are looking for the black box, the way we looked for the Malaysian plane that was never found, was it? I think not no, yet. Not yet. And, you know, the way when a plane goes down, you try and find the people, the bodies, the at least the black box or the, or the shell of it, of the plane. And so what Sean did was he took a young dancer called um, uh, Catherine Pui, P-U-I-E, who came to the opening. Uh, she dressed in the clothes, aviator's clothes, that Nancy Bird Walton would have worn, there's a photograph of her, of um, Catherine, in the second sort of half of the gallery. And then we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to borrow from the portrait gallery a real, uh, the real person? This is Nancy Bird. And so Sean has imagined so many portraits. There's so many portraits in this. A self-portrait as a young man via text. The portrait of the Pope by Francis Bacon that goes back to other portraits. The portrait of Nancy Bird with reference to the other aviator. Water, storm, flying, the, the throne-like chair that we all sit on as we fly. And then in Barbara's show, I'd like Angus to finish up because we're almost there. It's 5.30, is it, Rebecca? We need some questions. To finish up on what many people wouldn't have seen, so you'll need to describe them very well, uh, you know, as you do, but there's nothing uh, nothing in front of us. (laughs) Uh, The portrait of the Afghani, uh, of the Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. Yes. It's a series of portraits. It's in here, if you want to look up. Yes, the there, there, there's one of them is tra- transfixing for me. Um, you, you, if, if I describe them as um, very s- s- spare in conception, these are, these are photographs of various different Australian military personnel photographed head and shoulders from behind. And it's amazing, actually, how often um, an image of someone captured from behind nevertheless tells you so much about, mm-hmm. a lot about them, mm-hmm. minus the face. Um, you have uh, the silhouette of the head, the ears and so on. Um, one of these pur- purports to be an Oz aid official. But um, uh, since the last election, uh, the arts portfolio has been folded into the Attorney, Gen- Attorney General's department. So I actually know but he's wearing the Attorney General's Department ID tag. So he's ASIO. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we have to preface this as how Sean got to Afghanistan. He, he, I'm sorry. Yes. The work was commissioned for, uh, in, in, in a distinguished long tradition but for the Australian War Memorial. Uh, uh, Sean Gladwell went to, to Afghanistan as a, as a war artist mm. and was embedded with um, Australian troops, uh, I think not far from Kandahar, mm-hmm. um, while they were doing their tour of duty. Um, can I just say one final thing about, about Nancy Yes, Walton? yes, please. Mm. Because I think it is interesting. Sean, I think, sees um, uh, Nancy Bird Walton uh, as, as an unusual person because of the challenges to uh, women aviators um, at the dawn of flight. In other words, aviation was, the, was like so many avenues for women, a, a difficult road to tread. 
But actually, interestingly, it's precisely the technologies of um, flight, of 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 um, the combustion, uh, the um, the internal combustion engine, so driving, and even before that, cycling, actually were 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 op- were, were avenues uh, exploited by women to escape earlier strictures. Mm. So the, one of the reasons why women took up cycling so with such extraordinary uh, enthusiasm, and think about it, it, it brought about a complete revolution in dress, um, mm. in social habits and customs. Same with motoring. Um, uh, was that it in fact was a liberating technology and that in fact women motorists, women cyclists and women aviatrix, well aviatrixes as mm-hmm. we as we are inclined. Now the, that Latin suffix ix is a really is a really contested one. I mean we we, we say dominatrix, we uh, say testatrix and we say aviatrix. Now nowadays there are deep problems with with each I use aviator and then aviator. you say woman. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. so mm. you could say aviatrix exists as a as a category on its own mm. because in fact it's an unusual and distinct thing. A tribal uh, mm. existence. Very small group. A small yeah, group, group of pioneering yeah. women. But also extreme sports in those days, flying was an extreme exactly. sport. Exactly. And look what's happened, just happened. It's becoming extreme again. I mean, we're not flying the planes, but she was in danger. She lived to be an yeah. old lady. Uh, and I think what's nice about, about having um, Nancy in old age, as well as Nancy evoked in her prime, mm. Is it, it brings up the whole question of the life cycle of, of a portrait. Mm. An artist and a sitter, generally speaking, in this kind of canonical um, situation, come together at a moment, and and the moment that they or the time that they spend together in the studio um, uh, brings is never closer uh, in. Uh, temper to the final product. In other words, the picture at its completion is as near as possible to the genuine quality of the experience of the encounter and the appearance of the sitter. Mm -hmm. So from that moment there's just, with time, a divergence. The person gets older. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're Dorian Gray. (laughs) Um, And then in the fullness of time, of course, the sitter and the artist, or vice versa, one of them will die, move on, and the picture or the portrait or the idea enters a completely new phase of mm. its life. Mm. And it becomes, in fact, the only iteration at times of the likeness that mm. it purports to reproduce, mm. there being no point of comparison because the point of comparison was gone. is gone. Mm. And then, for, for eventually, it, as has happened often in the history of art, we lose track of who the subject even was. Mm. Um, so I think that the strength... And one of the interesting parts about Sean's work is that there is a strong sense, an awareness of that process. Very much so. And He's enormously aware of time. Yeah. Yes. Even in his slowed down... Um, you know, those twirling, uh, the skateboarding, the famous... Uh, um, Oh, God, I've forgotten the name of it now. 
storm sequence, the famous storm sequence from 2000. I mean, it's just the slowness. That's the balletic, the ballet, but it's also time is slowed and captured and... And that's why he took an interest, or part of the reason I imagine that he took an interest in art history, because the uh, semiological approach flattens time, yes. whereas he wanted to go through time. And so he, uh, he, he felt frustrated with just the one ideology. We're going to have to stop, but we want questions, and then we'll, we'll thank um, Angus. Come on, guys. You've heard a very erudite man uh, oh, wow. and uh, with lots of prompts from me. So is there anything you want to ask about the portrait gallery? About uh, We've got Gary Greeley here, who's done many portrait photographs, one of Brian that is the best thing that I think, with his eyes closed, <coughs> right, Gary? Do you want to talk and just share a little bit about that portrait? Yes. Yes, no, I know. I'm putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. Well, just describe it first because not everyone's seen it. Um, it's a portrait um, of Brian and Jean and it was actually meant to be a diptych. And uh, it, 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 the portrait came about after... Um, hearing Brian talk on the conversation hour about uh, voiceless. About for I remember. And, um, uh, and it struck me that, that always wanting to do portraits about people within the art world, um, that this was a perfect subject. And then I thought, well, you've got these people that have sort of invested into philanthropic trusts uh, that's helping the art world. And uh, so I did this portrait, or I wanted to do this portrait of support. And so it was going to be Jean's uh, head with Brian's hand supporting her head, and vice versa. And it actually turned out when I did the both images and we sat them together, um, the one of, um, uh, of um, Brian's hands on Jean became sort of a much more threatening thing. So we quick, we quickly, we quickly, we quickly dropped that, that. And, uh, and the portrait became um, uh, Jean supporting Brian's head, like this, like yes, like that. And um, and it was lucky enough to be in the uh, national portrait. And prize. it was in the portrait yeah. prize. Yes, it was yes, a finalist. Yes. So uh, and so you've yeah, been yes. And so with a lot, as with a lot of my portraits, it comes about. Um, uh, Seeing documentaries or hearing people talk, and, and, and actually, Jai Wei, um, I did a portrait of, of, of Jai Wei and his wife, mm-hmm. and it was after seeing a documentary about the, the, the cultural revolution and being separated, and, and, uh, and did a work uh, with them holding a photograph. This of is Jai Wei, guys, a painter sitting in front. Yes, yeah. so, so my work always comes about from researching, from hearing, and yes. then going and approaching the subject. And approaching the yes. subject. And they sometimes say no, right, Gary? They do sometimes, they do say, sometimes no. say no. Yes, yes, yes. Um, anybody else? Otherwise, we'll ask Shah Wei to talk about his idea of portrait. <laughs> Are you comfortable doing that, Shah Wei? I haven't got a Chinese speaker to tra- Does anyone speak Chinese in the room? <laughs> no. We need Claire, right? <laughs> what, how do you come to your portrait, Shah Wei? Uh, you mean... Uh, How do you choose who to... Yeah, portrait... Portrait, it's, uh, for artists, it's just uh, if, if you're very interested about a face. Mm-hmm. And uh, then behind the face is a 
character. Uh, the character, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so can catch everything. You, uh, I, I should yeah. say that that um, Jaway has 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 a number of pic- pictures in the in the National Portrait Collection, but perhaps arguably one of our most important, which is the portrait of Gordon Darling, yes. who is yeah. uh, with Marilyn Darling. Uh, I guess um, our, well, two of our founding patrons, but and probably the two people without whom the National Portrait Gallery would not have come into being. True. But he also painted Crown Princess Mary of Denmark, yeah. a painting that was um, supported by our wonderful donor, Molly Murphy. Yes. Just yes. about to celebrate her 90... Which has just celebrated her 99th birthday. Mm, wow. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. it's great to see you. Yes, yes. This is a very interesting... Uh, uh, experience is that, uh, uh, but but the uh, the the, the um, Princess Mary's portrait quite a, quite a unique because uh, is a, the time very short it couldn't couldn't sit in too long time so only only about three hours three oh, hours yeah. she said so it's I, a full length portrait yeah so I I, yes. I, I use the half uh, about one and a half uh, uh, hours drawing a sketch yeah uh, sketch is okay I I I didn't make it too many mistakes, so I can, <laughs> we're catching that. And well, she loved it when she, she, she came to the she, she portrait gallery. That. She, she wanted that. She wanted that. And uh, so, she so, loved so, it. yeah. So Andrew said that afterwards we give to her. So to the finally, port- finally give to her. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. our, our portrait, mm. is yeah. it? Yes, yeah. not yeah. her portrait. No. Um, but uh, but no. the interest is is is, is, is uh, uh, when I doing that. The preparing work is I took many photos and the lady in waiting is a very tough uh, uh, um, middle-aged woman and uh, the lady said no never uh, never painting or took photo of uh, the uh, profile as a side of of the princess. Oh. <laughs> well, well, I didn't understand that. Shall yeah, no. when when I, I took a photo, I at different angles. Oh, different I want, angles. I want to understand about the, yeah, the whole the head. head. So yeah. I, when, when I took a photo, is a side. Yes, the side, and, and they the, didn't want well, you. And then she said, "No, never. I suppose the lesson there is that there are many remarkable thing about ladies, ladies in waiting. Art is not one of them. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think you were wise just to press yeah. on. Yeah, so, 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 so this painting, when when finished, and the uh, the, uh, the the comments said this is. Uh, a court painting is a quite it's a court quite, painting quite, quite, quite official official uh, but painting. everything already uh, you you have to I, I only have choice because uh, is a is a uh, she already uh, wearing the uh, had had a symbol is an elephant there oh the yeah. elephant you yes. have to show there you have to show yes, the so, elephant so this side and you couldn't uh, yes side. it were so all sorts choice. of restrictions yeah but uh, but uh, uh, I before I um, I the, the sitting I had a Opportunities just as the ABC had a one hour yes. conversation. I see. Well, yeah. that's very yeah. helpful. Yeah, so I very carefully to see yes. how she was. How, what yeah. she's yeah. Talk- yeah. This, talking This is very about. important. All right, happening. let's move on now. Any other? There's a question behind you, shall we? Well, I just have a comment. Yes. Because this talk is about. Uh, put, put the mark a little the work closer. Is about the, the talk is about the work which is in the gallery at the moment. Yeah. It's a portrait. Yeah. And we have uh, a place in the. In Canberra, which is a portrait gallery, yes. we have a painter who does uh, portraits. Who's a portrait paint- we have a photographer who does portraits. <laughs> I imagine that if the brief to the gallery, I'm an architect. Yes. I'm just listening to yeah. the architectural side of it. If the brief to the architect was the, to do a portrait gallery, and the understanding was 
that portraits might mean the things that we see there. The portrait gallery would have a different shape. Well, here's the architect, right? <laughs> we just so happen to have the architect. Richard, in, in Richard Johnson is the architect of the portrait indeed gallery. Indeed, it would not have a different shape <laughs> because that sort of the galleries are quite adaptable to to uh, displaying works of that sort. What what it does have is an intimacy, mm. which which I make no apology for. No, so it doesn't have. Your, your huge contemporary art spaces. So that's so so it, art installations that were deemed to be portraiture of an immense scale, it will not accommodate. No. But but I can't envisage portraiture ever being like that. Maybe I'd be wrong. But in which case there's also a plan, as Angus knows very well, to extend to the to the to the West. <laughs> we know so, it too, but <laughs> So as, we don't know who's going to pay for it. <laughs> but, but that, uh, I mean, it was an interesting feel, question. You know the great story about, about Wagner, uh, who had devised the, the scheme of the ring in his mind. He realised that the score was developing. He needed an orchestra twice the size. He needed a theatre with particular kinds of capacities. So he writes a pamphlet and he says, I need a prince who will support this. Little did he know that it ends up on the desk of Mad King Ludwig of Bavaria, and it actually happens. Mm. Uh, he was the most incredibly lucky person, because without Ludwig, there would be no Bayreuth. No. Um, so, so, but I think you're right, Richard. I mean, I think, actually, you, know, you have to ask yourself, is Australia ever going to need a Waterloo chamber? That's to say, a room on a grand, grand scale that's palatial, in, in which the heroes of uh, a, you know, a great national moment, or international moment, actually, mm -hmm. are to be displayed. So you know the story that Sir Thomas Lawrence is given a knighthood and a passport and a bunch of money to go to the Congress of Vienna and portray the victorious generals, sovereigns and statesmen of the powers that defeated Napoleon. And he did that. So they're all there in the Waterloo Chamber at Windsor Castle. Now, that grand full lengths, everyone from the Pope to Metternich to every... You could argue that the, the elephant in the room in the Waterloo Chamber is Napoleon. Mm. But by that time, he was on aboard the Bellerophon on his way to St Helena, so it would never have happened. But are we as a country ever going to need that kind of... That my I would say almost no, certainly not. not no. That portraiture for us is always going to represent. Um, I think my own feeling is, and my hope is that it will represent a particularly democratic character of the mm. culture that we have uh, created. You know, it's I I I came back to Australia uh, after eleven years abroad, thinking that. And it was clear to me, I mean, I, I'm not just thinking, saying it, that, that, that to everyone I could get to listen, that it was, there was no doubt in my mind that Australia has never been uh, more interesting, diverse and prosperous in my memory and, and in the last hundred years. I mean, everything on the road is new. Shops are full of people spending money. This is not what, what is happening in the United States for the mm. past six years. Mm. Um, 
you know, houses cost a fortune. I don't know why that is, but they do. And, you know, there's an enormous sense of, of prosperity. Um, now, iron ore is and a bit of austerity from the, from the federal government in the last year and a half has, has just slightly turned down the volume a bit. But really, I mean, not much. So I think Australia, and this is what I think the portrait gallery tries to, um, to render, is both um, enormously exciting and interesting place to be now, never more so, uh, and precisely because it has a far, far more democratic and broad-ranging mm. set of definitions about what attainment and distinction means within this community. Mm. So you won't find Nancy Bird Walton or her equivalent on the walls of the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. You, you might. You might. Amy I Johnson, would, I maybe, would say, yeah. yes. But, but mm. I mean, in terms of works of art that uplift and, and pay, pay, uh, pay tribute to the work of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, I mean, by definition, the Royal Flying Doctor Service is a unique aspect of Australian life that doesn't exist in other places. No, the distances. Now, we've, uh, we, we need to uh, finish on this note. The portrait gallery designed by Richard Johnson, who's sitting just in front of me here, we get remarks in our visitor's book. We get people um, phoning us and emailing us, and there is not one person who does not say that building is divine. Absolutely. And I think it's because of that democratic intimate feeling that gives it um, its very special place in people's hearts, really. It is... For, who hasn't... I won't point you out. No. <laughs> Take that back. Guys, let's thank Angus. And, uh, and please all go to the portrait gallery. <laughs> Thanks so much.